Today's the day that some of those kids walking out, it's their first time to do this. As, as it is for my three-year-old, uh, she's always been in downstairs when we get here in church, and she stays down there during the whole worship service, and so uh, today was a new experience for her and for us, amen. Uh, you're breaking the kids into church. What is it like to stand here for 30 minutes and sing songs and do things you're not used to doing? And so I know a couple of other families, it's uh, a first for you today, at least for that particular child, and so it's always a challenge. But I enjoyed watching Hadley sing this morning, or um, I enjoyed watching Hadley talk while we sing this morning and piddle around. It was fun, but uh, you got to start somewhere. So I'm grateful for our children's ministry and all that they do. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're working verse by verse through this uh, letter, this final letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, as I've said a few weeks ago, Paul is... Uh, in a Roman dungeon, he's in a Roman prison, most likely he's faced his trial and he's now awaiting execution and so he's sending this final letter to his young uh, mentee in the faith, a, a young man that he loved dearly, had poured his life into him and, and he's challenging and charging him and encouraging Timothy in the faith and not just in the faith but in the ministry as he's the pastor there at the church in the city of Ephesus. This morning, I'm not preaching a typical Father's Day message. Uh, so we're going to talk about the call to spiritual or for spiritual loyalty. But I will say this, that this ought to be indicative of every Christian man, right? We ought to be loyal to the Lord and loyal to the Lord's people and, and, and come alongside our brothers and sisters in a time of need. For, with that said, it, it should also be true of every Christian woman that there's loyalty in your life to the Lord and to the Lord's people. You've probably heard of the ancient fable, the two travelers and the bear. In that fable, uh, two men are walking down a road in the forest, and these men, as they're walking down this road in the forest, encounter a, a very fearsome, very massive bear. And so one of the travelers was obviously in great fear, and, and so he just, without even hes- with, uh, hesitating, uh, shimmied up a tree and just left his, his friend there on the road. He gave no thought to his friend's welfare or protection. And so the other traveler was left there by himself with no chance to go anywhere. And and in that split moment, remembered something he had been told and taught earlier that bears tend to kind of lose interest in something that's dead. And so he just kind of went lifeless and played possum. And and, and so this big, massive bear comes over and he begins to nuzzle around and sniff at this man's face and ears. And after a few minutes, he just kind of realized that he must be dead and wandered away. When the bear was long gone, the man up in the tree climbed down, and he came over to his friend and asked him, what did the bear whisper to you? I noticed that his mouth was long at your ear. The other man said, he was dusting himself off, and he said, it's no secret what he told me. What he said was that I should be careful about keeping company with those who, when danger arises, leave their friends in a lurch. (laughs) You ever been there? I bet every one of us who have any amount of years underneath our belt on some level have known and experienced the terrible hurt produced by disloyalty. Produced when someone that you love and respect, someone that you thought would have your back, betrayed you. In fact, most of us, if not all of us, know what it feels like for your good friend to act like you don't exist in the company of certain others. 
You know, the pain of being stabbed in the back by someone that you trusted and loved. You know, the sorrow of abandonment when your friends chose not to help you in your time of need. Instead, they chose themselves. They chose their own personal benefit, their own reputation over you and your difficulties. Rather than remaining loyal to you, they were only loyal to themselves. This happens in our friendships. This happens even in our families. Disloyalty. Where are the loyal people today? Where are those who will stick with you through thick and thin? I believe that we're living in an age of disloyalty. I I believe that our age, and, and it's hard to compare ages and generations and all of that, but when we look around our culture, what we see is, is people will tend to stick with you as long as, it, as it's beneficial for them. As long as it's got something that's going to help them, they will stick with you. That's not always the case, but it many times is the case. In earlier generations, employees would spend their entire careers with one company, but as we look out over our culture, we don't see that. We see people jumping from company to company, and I'm not here to say that's right or wrong. I'm just just making a statement that's the reality of where we're at. It wasn't long ago that neighbors and communities rallied to the side of anyone who had a need, but today many don't even know who their neighbors and their people in their community are, much less be able to come to their aid. And so we live in, a, in, in an age where it seems to be more disloyal than loyal. We live in a hypercritical culture. And so as such, we're quick to distance ourselves from anyone facing criticism. And, and so when a friend or a family member even begins to, to, to face some criticism and have some criticism thrown their way, we tend to back away rather than lean in. Why is it? that way? I believe the answer is grounded and rooted in this concept, this idea of self-centeredness. We would rather be loyal to ourselves and our welfare rather than face the, the, the criticism that would come our way when we help those who are being criticized. So when those difficulties arise, when challenges come, what our natural and default response is, is self-preservation. We begin to look out for our own welfare. We, we see this in the disciples when Jesus was arrested, right? You remember that? Jesus is arrested there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the garden, and immediately, what are all of the disciples doing? They're scattering, and anytime they're asked, are you with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you been following him? Peter and I believe all of the others were saying this. I don't have a clue who he is. I've never seen, seen him. I've never talked to him. I don't know who that man is. The Bible tells us that they all deserted. They all denied Jesus. And so the reason for that was they feared facing the same fate as the Lord. And so they moved into this self-preservation mode. A man by the name of Peter Forsyth says this about loyalty. He says, to have no loyalty is to have no dignity and the end, no manhood. It's a coward. But aren't you grateful today that Jesus... Remain loyal even when his father followers were disloyal. You see, Jesus never looked at Peter and said, because you denied me, I don't know who you are. 
No, Jesus was awaiting him on the seashore, and he had a fire there, and he had some fish, and he prepared breakfast for his disciples, the ones who were disenfranchised, the ones who were trying to figure this thing out, the ones who had actually said, I don't know him. Jesus is there with the meal. He remained loyal even to those who were disloyal. So Jesus is a wonderful example of how we should live our life. He he was selfless when everyone else was self-centered. Jesus said this in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You see, he gave it all. Not just one time, but he continued to give it all as he leaned in to those who were wavering in their commitment. So I think the fable of the two travelers and this bear would, would have evoked a smile from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to have fair-weather fans. He knew what it was like to to have people who said, I'm with you to the very end, but then when the times got tough, they walked away. He knew the hurt. He knew the heartache of abandonment. And yet he also recognized the beauty of loyalty because he had also experienced that. He knew what it was to have friends who would stick with him when the fire got really hot. What we find here in the final four verses of chapter 1 is Paul continuing his appeal for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel message or of the messenger of the gospel. And in doing so, he, lays, he holds up for the loyalty of a Christian brother as a shining example of spiritual loyalty. He's going to speak of this man, Onesiphorus, and how he was loyal to him. Look with me in verse 15, reading through the end of the chapter. Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. These verses here teach us that believers must stand tall, believers must suffer with, and believers must keep the faith with one another. We're a family. Family sticks together. The connection of these verses with the preceding passage is clear. He's using these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, to contrast Onesiphorus with this call to Timothy to not be ashamed of the message or the messenger. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of the message for which I am in these chains. But be like Onesiphorus and be faithful. Be loyal to the Lord and to the Lord's people. Paul gives us these negative and positive examples to reinforce this exhortation. So he does so with these uh, by talking about Two groups or two experiences. And so let me just lay these out this morning. First of all, let's see the deflating desertion. We see here deflating desertion. Now, just so you remember this, but you probably know, but Paul's the author of 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, right? Paul's this incredible uh, theologian. He's this incredible scholar, uh, he's a man that had an incredible religious pedigree. He studied under the, the greatest Pharisees and religious teachers in, 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 in all of Judaism during his time. He would call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was an incredible man of impeccable uh, intellectual 
capabilities. We would probably look at him today and think of him as some sort of theologian that's high in the ivory tower. He has multiple PhDs, and because of all of that, he probably has very little time for people. But that's not the picture we get of the Apostle Paul at all in the New Testament. In fact, what we see in the New Testament of Paul is the exact opposite. Not the opposite of him being, not being an intellectual and a theologian. He is those things, but he is also a very people-oriented person. In fact, in that most theological letter that he ever wrote, the letter to the church at Rome, at the end of that letter, in his salutation, he mentions 33 different people. Of those 33 people, 24 of them are living in Rome at the time, a city that Paul has never visited, which means that Paul somehow, someway, had crossed paths with these people in other places, and he had kept up with them. He knew where they were spiritually, and he knew where they were geographically. Paul tells us over and over again in his letters how he prays for people and and longs to see them. He was a people person. Prayed for his friends regularly was always deeply concerned for their welfare. In fact, their ups and their downs were his ups and his downs, as he shares with us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where he says this. He says, There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak. Who is made to fall and, and I am not indignant. What Paul is stressing there to the church at Corinth is, is that as you are going, as you are struggling in your faith, I'm right there with you, struggling with you. I have deep concern for you. I have deep love for you. I have deep compassion and, and zeal for your welfare. Paul was a lover of people. He was a great friend. He was highly relational. And here in this final letter, We see him expressing to Timothy something different, though. He's expressing his loneliness. Loneliness. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is in prison, his second imprisonment. The first time he was imprisoned there in Rome, he was, what the Bible tells us, was under house arrest. He had people, he he was basically uh, free to have visitors anytime he wanted. They could come and go, and people did that. They brought him things and spent time with them. And, and so he had a, a fairly easy imprisonment, if you will, if you compare it to his second time. But this time, he's chained to a Roman soldier. He's in a secluded dungeon somewhere, and there's only one person, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, there's only one person with him, and that's Luke. Everyone else is gone for various reasons. Some have deserted. Some have walked away from the faith. Some have have turned their back on him as a friend. Others are off doing ministry in other places. It's not that they wanted to leave Paul. It's that they had to leave Paul because they've been sent by Paul and by the Lord to do the work. Timothy is one of those. Timothy is in Ephesus, pastoring the church there. Paul's physical condition, his situation was bleak. But the abandonment by his friends was something that was unbearable for him. And so here he's lamenting to Timothy that that all his Asian brothers and all of his Asian sisters had deserted him. Asia was that Roman province there that would make up today the western part of modern day Turkey. Ephesus was the capital city of this province. And, And so Paul is saying that all of the brothers and sisters had deserted him. A substantial group of people had walked away. 
The departures were so staggering that, 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 that Paul would use this type of language. He's using hyperbole here. It is, he's not necessarily saying that every single person has walked away, but a significant number had walked away, and so it felt to him as if everyone had abandoned him. He, he's speaking out of a heart of depression. He's speaking out of a heart of heartache and brokenness, weariness. This is characteristic of a man who's depressed. Two men he names here, Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know anything other than Paul's mention of them here in this verse. They're not spoken of anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's highly probable that these two men were some sort of leaders there in the church in Ephesus or the greater church in, in Asia. Whoever these men were, they were obviously a disappointment to Paul as they most likely were the ones leading this desertion from the apostle. So this walking away from Paul evidently refers to a specific event. And yet we don't know what that event was. Most think it was Paul's arrest and his conviction. The fact that he's, like I said last Sunday, there were some in the church that, that really believed that if you had the Holy Spirit and you were walking with God and your life was pleasing to God, then, then surely your life would be blessed. It's sort of the health and wealth, prosperity gospel that we have today. And so when they saw his arrest and his conviction and, and, and subsequent execution, they began to say, God's not with that guy. Which is funny, because you think about this. God himself was crucified on a cross. He was put on a tr- in a trial. He was convicted of a crime he didn't commit and executed for it. And yet, these believers actually had the audacity to think that if you walked with God, that wouldn't possibly be your fate. Perhaps that's the reason they walked away. Roman's courts, Roman courts would have never prosecuted Paul on some sort of religious accusation, and so he must have been held on some sort of political charge, something like sedition or, or, or endangering the peace of, of Rome. Nothing less would have made him a prisoner there of the state, but that's where he found himself. He found him, himself in the seat of adversity. Remember Proverbs 17, 17, what it calls us to remember? He says there, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You see, adversity separates the chaff of surface friendship from the substance of real friendship. You want to know who's really your friend? The friends that you really have are the ones who will stick with you when the difficulties come. Ones who will stand by your side and speak for you and say, this is not something that they did. This is not something that they should be accused of. This is someone who will stand with you when you have nothing to give back to them. And and they only have things that will be taken from them by standing with you because they've either got to give you their resources to meet your needs or they've got to absorb the criticism that's going to you because they're standing with you. That's when you know you have a friend. Adversity reveals real friendship. And so this truth had become apparent in Paul's difficulties. Clarence McCartney in his book, The Women of Tekoa and Other Sermons and Bible Characters, gives us an illustration of what this adversity looks like. And so I just want you to hear this. He says, as the shadow once said to the body, who is a friend like me? I follow you where you go in sunlight or moonlight. I never forsake you. True, said the body. You go with me in sunlight and moonlight, but where are you when neither the sun nor the moon shines upon me? See, that's where Paul found himself. 
These brothers and sisters said, we're with you, Paul. We'll stand with you through thick and thin. And when thick and thin came, they were nowhere to be found. Adversity proved that they had no love for Paul. Neither the sun or the moon was shining on this apostle. The shadow of his friends had left him. And so there's no doubt that desertion and abandonment was deflating for the apostle. There's no doubt for you and I today that when we feel these and we experience these things in our own life, that it's deflating to us emotionally. It's deflating to us spiritually. It can lead to depression. It can lead to all uh, a host of other emotions. There's also no doubt that being in relationship with others means at some point you will experience desertion by those that you hoped would stand by your side. And so if you never want to feel that, if you never want to experience that, that means you have to have no relationships in your life because people will let you down. If you wanted to be encouraged this morning, there, there's an encouragement. Your friends, your family members will let you down. You just need to know that. You know why I will let you down? Because we have clay feet. We're human. We're flawed. We're fallen. Even as redeemed followers of Jesus, we have not yet reached perfection. And so we will at some point and in some way let others down in the faith. We don't always mean to, but that's what's going to happen. So we need to understand that because that's going to help our perspective as we really learn how to keep our eyes on Jesus because he's the only one who will not let us down. The Bible tells us that there is one who will never leave nor forsake us, and that's Jesus Christ. So the challenge for us as believers is to emulate the loyalty of our Lord as we stand tall, as we suffer with, and we keep the faith with with our brothers and sisters walking alongside them through the thick and through the thin. This brings us to a second experience that Paul mentions. So there's deflating desertion, obviously. But then he speaks of this man named Onesiphorus, and he speaks of his refreshing reliability. Look with me in verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. So may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all service he rendered at Ephesus. See, this was the practice of Onesiphorus' life. This is who he was. He was an encourager. He was a servant. He was a man who wanted to come alongside and be reliable and be a comfort to others. For Paul, when it seemed that everyone was running away from from him, Onesiphorus was running toward him. Now, we just need to, to understand this. Timothy couldn't run to him, right? His obligations were in Ephesus. Titus was in Crete preaching and pastoring. There were brothers that would have ran to him. There were sisters that would have run to him. But it wasn't for them at this point. But there were many who were walking away. And in the face of all of those who were walking away, there's this one man named Onesiphorus who was running toward Paul. And apparently from what we read here, it was difficult to find Paul's location. They were in prison. Several factors could have been uh, playing into this. First of all, it could be that, that Onesiphorus had never been to Rome before, and so he's trying to find himself, uh, find his way through this major metropolitan city. Second reason could have been that the fact that Emperor Nero had burned a good portion of this city, and so it made travel and, and finding things difficult in Rome. Third reason could have been that the Romans were keeping the location of Paul's imprisonment from all people who would call the name of Christ for whatever reason. Maybe they... They felt like they would maybe try to attack and, and, and retrieve him themselves, but that could have been a reason. 
for the difficulty. The fourth reason could have been that believers in Rome, because of persecution, because of difficulties, their numbers had been reduced because they had fled the city, and those who remained were a little hesitant to answer questions, especially questions that revolved around a man's name of Paul, and so they just kind of would look at him and just, I don't know anything. I, I'm, I'm, he, see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil, that, that sort of thing. So knowledge and information was hard to come by. But in spite of this, what we see here is Onesiphorus searched earnestly for the apostle. He, he walked through the serpentine passages of Rome. He is the one knocking on doors. He was asking in his provincial accent, where's Paul? Have you heard of Paul? Do you know where Paul is? His accent would have been giving him away that you're not from Rome. You're from an area that Paul is known to have frequented. And so in response to that, I can see doors slamming in his face. I can see disapproving eyes watching as he continued his search up and down the roads. But he refused to give up. Onesiphorus was asking dangerous questions. The lesser devoted would have made no search at all. They would have said, this is not worth it. This is not something that we should do. It's, it's dangerous. Others would have cooled their consciences with minimal effort. They would have simply said, he can't be found. There's no way to do it. And so, let's give up but not Onesiphorus. He kept on. And so put yourselves in Paul's shoes. He's there in this prison. He only has Luke with him. He longs to see a good friendly face. He longs to have some of the things he's, he's used to having. He's not getting in prison. And all of a sudden, after many, many dark days in loneliness, in steps Onesiphorus, a man he well knew, a man who had ministered to him many times, a friend of his, most likely someone that Paul had personally led to, follow, to, to faith in Jesus Christ, someone that Paul had discipled and mentored in the faith. Here walks this servant into Paul's prison cell, and he's a fresh, wonderful, friendly face. Joy would have overwhelmed Paul. Bible tells us here that Onesiphorus didn't just come once. Paul says, he often refreshed me. He came again and again. The phrase conjures up the idea that the presence of his friend provided a special tonic to Paul. It's almost like that every time that would, when Onesiphorus would come and visit it, he was bringing this, this, this tonic of some sort of water that when Paul would drink it, he would immediately be refreshed in his heart and in his spirit. He brought needed physical supplies, but the greater provision was none other than his friendship. See, it was here for Paul in his valley of the shadow of death. He was there for him. He was there in his time of despair. He was there with Paul in the midst of his trouble and heartache. Onesiphorus stood by Paul when others were walking away. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. He wasn't concerned about the cost to him personally. He was concerned about his friend. He was there to serve him. He was there to love him. He was there to simply uphold a man who had stood by him before. And into the midst of this deflating desertion, in the midst of Paul's depression, Onesiphorus was a refreshing breeze. He was like a cool drink on a hot day, often refreshing the apostle. Is it any wonder then what we see in verses 16 being uttered by the apostle where he speaks this blessing over his life? May the Lord bless him. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
Onesiphorus was a refreshing believer. This was the practice of his life that we see in verse 18. Paul says, Timothy, you know who this is. You know how much of a blessing he's been to me in these past few days because he's been that to the people in Ephesus. He is a refreshing, reliable servant of Almighty God in the church. This man was loyal to Paul. He stood with his friend. He was loyal. Why? Because Jesus was first loyal to him. You see, the gospel had transformed this man's life. This wasn't something that Onesiphorus conjured up in himself. No, this was something that was seated in him because Jesus had been this to him. He'd been raised from death to life. Old things had passed away. and Behold, new things had come into the life of Onesiphorus. And therefore, he was not ashamed of the testimony of the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel messenger or the gospel preacher. Instead, he spent himself in service of others. He understood Jesus' words that when he served others, Matthew 25, he was serving Jesus Christ. Amen? The selflessness is rare, even in the church. When the circumstantial bear comes roaring For you, do you flee to the trees and abandon those who might be in danger around you? Or is your first thought to serve, to protect, and to come to the aid of those in danger, those in need? Paul here issues a call for spiritual loyalty to Timothy. Why is it today in our hypercritical culture, why is it that even in the church that when we hear something about someone, we don't even think about whether or not it's true or false, we immediately go to the accusation, rather than the defense. We immediately think the worst about a person, the worst about a situation, the worst about whatever, rather than considering that it might be positive. The person might be falsely accused. And even if the thing is true about a person, is it our responsibility to abandon the person even in their sin? No. How many times do we do do that in the church? When a brother or sister falls into sin, we just want to wipe our hands of it. Man, we're done with this. When a man walks out on his wife and commits adultery and says, I don't want anything to do with that. What is our responsibility as a church to say, all right, you're making a dumb decision, you're making a foolish decision, you're making a sinful decision, but you go do what you want to do. No, our responsibility as Christians is to come alongside that man. If he's a brother in Christ, to try to win him back into the faith and and to help him to see his seed and come to a place of brokenness and repentance. If he is a lost man, our responsibility is to come and to present the gospel to him so that he can be saved, that his marriage can be restored, and so his family can be healed. Our responsibility is not to walk away. It's not to let the person walk away. Our responsibility is to chase after them, to search for them earnestly and try to win them into the faith. And yet, what do we do so often? We resort to the idea that it's going to be too costly. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't, want to get, I don't want to get my fingers dirty. Let me just remind you of something you should already know. Ministry is dirty because people are dirty. And if you don't want to get your fingers dirty, then you need to go buy a private island that I saw on the news this morning. I guess in New York, you can get like a private island for $13 million, build a house. No one will come and visit you because they don't have boats. And you can just live your life and be clean, but you'll be miserable. Plus, you probably don't have $13 million. If you do, there's this building program we're doing called New Day. (laughs) If you'll just tithe off that, we'll be doing good. 
spiritual loyalty. Man, we live in a disloyal age, don't we? Everybody turns on everyone. Hypercritical, casting stones, throwing sticks, rather than loving people. The good news is this, is that we have a Savior who is ever loyal to his people. He's with us on the mountaintop, and we love it. We love, don't you love to live on the mountaintop? Man, it's great up there. The wind's blowing. It's cool. It's refreshing. Life is easy. Life is good. It's wonderful. And, and we can look around, and, and we can say, man, the Lord has blessed me. The Lord is with me. The, the problem with that is many times when we're on the mountain, we begin to forget that God is the one who put us on the mountain. We begin to think it, we did it ourselves, and we take credit, and so then we move into the valley, and, and what we find in the valley that when it's difficult, and, and it may come because of our sin, it may become because of our, our unwillingness to honor God, and so he sends us into the valley, or it may be like Job, he's a righteous and upright man, fearing God, and yet he still sends us into the valley. But you know what we find in the realms of life? He's with us in every stage, in the good times, in the bad times, and in between. He's with us. He's ever faithful. Jesus is there. Psalm 46.1, he's an ever-present in our troubles. The Bible tells us, Hebrews 13.5, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So today, if you've been born again, this assurance is for you. He's with you. He loves you. He's a father to you. And as a father cares for his children, the heavenly father cares for you. If you've not faith into Jesus, if you've never been born again, this assurance can, can be yours today. The Bible tells us that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9, God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. It can be yours today. So we live in a disloyal culture, sometimes, many, many times, unfortunately, disloyal even in the church. What I've seen... Also in the church, many, 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 many times, the people of God rising up to the occasion, and when someone couldn't stand by themselves, they stood with them, and they helped them in their time of need. Let's be those believers. And in all of it, let's understand that Jesus stands with us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you today. This is, I think, a timely message as we have... One of our dear, dear friends leave this life and enter eternity yesterday. We have a family who's deeply, deeply hurting. God, in the midst of their pain, we know that you're there. Father, we know that you are ministering to them, that you are, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, you are the God of all comfort. Help us as your people to be your hands and feet in this situation. There are countless other situations in the life of our fellowship. People are battling cancer, dealing with financial heartache and strife, difficulties. How there's relationships that are strained. There are just a myriad of obstacles. and It's tiring. It's wearying. And I thank you for those who are standing with others. Father, help us all to stand strong with one another. 
be a source of comfort, to be exactly what Onesiphorus was, refreshing, cool drink on a hot day, special tonic that invigorated and spurred others on in their faith, their commitment to Jesus. Lord, we can do that because you were that for us. But you're only that for us when we're in relationship with you. And there are more, like, more than likely some sitting in this room, someone who listened to this podcast this next week. But that's not, that's not true of them. They may be religious, but religion will get you nowhere. You didn't call us to be religious. You called us to be in relationship with you. That you would be our Lord and Savior. This morning, I pray for every person. It could be a senior adult man or a child this morning. They've never placed their faith in Jesus. They've never confessed their sin. They've never received forgiveness for that sin. I pray this morning that this would be the day of salvation for them. Move into, move into a time of response. Lord, help us to respond however way we need to. Open our hearts, open our minds. And help us to be the hands and feet, feet of Jesus. To our brothers, to our sisters, to the people in our community. We love you. In Jesus' name.